Can the Leader of the House let us know if an economic impact assessment on the deal has been carried out yet? And if it has, will it be published tomorrow in time for us to look at it before the second reading? If you ask an economist anything, you get the answer you want. Hello and welcome to the better than the worst edition of Romaniacs. After the government won a Commons vote on a Brexit deal for the first time ever, it lost control of the legislative timetable and paused the withdrawal bill. Now Johnson seems to be accepting that extension he said he didn't want, requested with a letter he didn't sign. <laughs> Britain's ditches are bracing themselves. <laughs> He's back to talking about an election and everybody is using the Extension Rebellion headline that we did and patented two weeks ago. I'm Dorian Litsky. It's Wednesday afternoon. We'll try and get this show out as fast as possible because uh, life moves pretty fast. Let's meet our regulars. Naomi Smith is the chief exec of Best of Britain and she is flushed with triumph after last weekend's <laughs> <laughs> massive People's Vote march. So, Naomi, we were expecting um, mixed feelings um, and then to everyone's surprise, uh, Letwin came through. I know you talked about a little mm. bit of this on the, the emergency um, podcast. Um, was, was it kind of a much better event or a much better mood than you were anticipating? Um, I was so nervous I could barely concentrate on the mood of the crowd at large. So I was sort of, you know, it was real nail-biting stuff in the run-up to that Letwin um, amendment uh, being voted on. And, of course, as seasoned uh, marchers know the phone signal goes pretty early on and the prospect of not being able to find out what was happening in real time was a bit too much for me so <laughs> I had to break it back somewhere I could get Wi-Fi for that I didn't want to wait to see it on the screen but you're right um, we were bracing ourselves for what would have felt a bit like a funeral procession um, and for, for everybody to be very disappointed and downbeat um, Actually, it wasn't at all. And in the end, obviously, with the Letwin Amendment being won, everybody became incredibly jubilant and the speeches were great and, you know, really helped to buoy up the crowd. Um, I just don't want people to have overcompensated and to feel like we'd won and defeated sure. uh, this deal, because obviously we hadn't. There was a moment I heard word of mouth that someone, someone said, oh, Letwin's parts, just as a sound system was playing uh, Let's Dance. <laughs> And it was raining and everybody was like singing along to Bowie in the rain. Oh. And it was just like, ah. And you suppose it's expectations, isn't yeah. it? Relative to the prospect of, you know, yep. of total defeat. The collective relief of a million the people shouldn't be underestimated. The collective love for Oliver Letwin <laughs> was, um, was startling. Um, now, last week's guest, Mike Butcher, claimed that German crowd experts had uh, said that 2.2 million people attended. That seems fantastical um, to me. There's always an annoying bit mm. after a march where it's like the numbers game. And then I noticed Brexiters were going that they'd, they, they'd found their own crowd experts right, of course. that had mm. insisted that it could only be 78,000 maximum. <laughs> and I was like, somewhere between 78,000 and 2.2 million <laughs> is the true figure. Lies, um, damn lies and statistics. What is it? Well, like, is, mm. it, is, it is that just a really maddening bit if you're, a, if you're an organiser mm. that you just have to play this kind of, this game of like, oh, don't overinflate it. Don't let people talk um, it down. Talk it down. Yeah. yeah, it is. Um and you never really know. That's the honest truth. Um we put 
uh, numbers out in press releases that are the best estimate that we have. Often that's um, following a, a conversation with other organisations like the police or TfL, who have obviously got you know slightly more um, accurate data on the numbers of people swelling into key uh, tube stations around meeting points and things like that. Yes, there's the aerial stuff, but. At the end of the day, it was very, 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 very big. And it was at least as big as the last one, but we think it was a little bit bigger. But was it 17.4 million, Naomi? <laughs> was it now? Um, also this week, we have exciting news. A brand new regular on the show, and not just because we've been bunging him lots of go sweet, sweet, get ready for Brexit cash. <laughs> um, he's part of the Grilla Collective, who've lampooned the government up and down the country, uh, reminded them of things they'd rather forget and made Brexit very nearly tolerable. Um, from Led by Donkeys, it's Ben Stewart. Hey, how you doing? Me, ben. So, um, how was your march? What, what, was the, what was the donkey action on the march? It was Part of it was the most stressful 75 minutes of my entire life, I think. There, it, there was a moment running up to the Letwin Amendment where, um, um, unfortunately, I did find that I had signal and that meant that I was watching Twitter. Ooh. And therefore, I was looking at every single minuscule development where various people who I was following were saying the DUP are going to back it, aren't going to back it, this person's in, that that person's not yeah, in. Yeah, when the DUP got hauled out of the chamber by yeah. one of Johnson's PPSs and we knew that yeah. he was getting thrown a bung. And, yeah. like, and there are people in the lobby that are looking down saying, IDS is speaking to Sammy Wilson, yeah. something's going on yeah. here. And you're like, something's going on here, oh my God. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, like we should not watch these world historic moments on Twitter. It's a really, really bad way to consume information and you go you know, on this adrenaline roller coaster. Um, but eventually it did pass and we cheered and we had the rather odd moment where I was hugging someone and saying, thank God for the DUP. And like, what the? <laughs> you know, Brexit's done this to us. Like, you know, it's so unfair. Elster says no. Um, and then we were, we were planning to get a crowd a banner um, up over the crowd like we did at the last march. And this one was a big spoof of the Get Ready advert saying get ready for a people's vote. So then we were immediately into the run up to that. Um, I found that extremely anxiety-inducing because we lost communications with our helicopter that was going to shoot it, and we couldn't tell whether the helicopter over the square was from the BBC or led by donkeys. And um, Rachel Kinnock, who was running the stage, was saying, are you ready to go yet? Are you ready to go yet? No, no, no. OK, quick, pushed on Joe Swinson instead. Um, but eventually we got a crackly um, walkie-talkie message from the radio saying, go, go, go. So we got this 1,100-metre banner over the crowd and then saw, the, saw the, the footage a couple of minutes later, and it was a beautiful thing. Nice. Our special guest this week is someone whose voice will give listeners of all ages the election night jitters. Um, <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> he's probably Britain's foremost sophologist, a regular on BBC election night coverage for a generation or more, and professor of politics at Strathclyde University. He runs What UK Thinks, the source for non-partisan information on attitudes to the EU and to us leaving it, and much against his will, a bit of a legend on Twitter. It's John Curtis. Good afternoon. Hi, John. How are you? Uh, fine, thank you very much. Um, like everybody else, wondering what's going to happen. Um, it seems from you know those endless nods and winks you get from unidentified sources over Twitter that keep journalists busy and in employment that um, there's a bit of a, a debate going on within both parties in the wake of the failure of the government to get the programme motion through last night. Uh, although clearly there are some people inside the Labour Party whose optimism is eternal 
and who believe that whatever the polls say, um, the part, Labour Party, of course, will win any immediate general election and thereby won't be able to remove Boris Johnson from office. There are others around who perhaps are slightly more sanguine and who are going, um, do we necessarily wish to commit electoral suicide? So that's an interesting battle. <laughs> um, equally on the other side, however, there clearly is evidently a debate going on around the Prime Minister as to whether indeed they should give up on the trying to pass the Brexit bill through this parliament to go for a general election um, uh, or whether in fact they should go back uh, uh, to with a programme motion, perhaps a programme motion that still has a rather tight uh, timetable to it, but maybe one that wins over enough MPs that uh, uh, they're able to get it through. So uh, as ever, Brexit proves to be disruptive of our two established parties and as we speak at least it's it's continuing in that vein with both of them struggling to work out what is the best way forward uh, so far as their respective interests are concerned. Well, I mean, a dark, rainy election would seem quite apt, but, I mean, there is a reason why people don't normally call elections this time of year. What, how likely do you think one is before the end of the year? Well, I mean, I could be proven wrong by the time this broadcast goes out. So, um, uh, I mean, I think the, you know, the, 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 it, it sounds as though the odds are greater than not um, in that, you know, uh, I mean, various signals. I mean, one is that the government's position seems to be that if the uh, European uh, Union do indeed provoke, give us with a three-month extension, as suggested by the Ben Act, that that will be too long for the Prime Minister. Um, uh, and in those circumstances, he will want to, to use the time, actually, that the mm. European Union will be giving him in order to hold an election that might enable him to get the, uh, uh, the, the Brexit bill uh, through. Um, but, of course, uh, he it's not in his gift. It does depend on the attitude of the Labour Party. Um, and uh, we wait to see whether or not the Labour Party is or is not uh, willing to acquiesce in the idea. I mean, I take it we are now staring at either the 5th or the 12th of December. It would have to happen... Parliament would have to be dissolved tomorrow for it to be the 28th of November. Um, and I unless the extension comes through very, very quickly and everybody all of a sudden agrees, then it's not going to happen tomorrow. So we're looking at early December. The last time we had a winter election, of course, was uh, during the miners' strike of 1974, uh, when, no, Edward, yeah. when Edward Heath, the then Prime Minister, was actually originally minded to go for an election on February the 7th. Um, these were when, you know, difficult to believe these days. You know, the lights were only on for so many hours a day and we were only working three days a week. You know, utterly inconceivable in today's digital world. Um, but that's how things were. Um, the Prime Minister then delayed and waited and waited until February the 28th, uh, something that many people regard as a mistake from his point of view. So, you know, that's the last time we had a winter election. Now, of course, the beginning of December is about the darkest time of the year, the end of mm -hmm. February. At least you can see the gl faint glow of spring in the, in the not-too-far distance. Um, but um, you know, at the end of the day, if we want, ha if we, if the um, House of Commons decides to dissolve itself, then an election will happen. The real constraint that's been going on throughout this is not so much the weather; it's Christmas. And you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the truth is that unless a decision ultimately <clears throat> is made by the beginning of November. It's, it'd be very difficult to hold an election within the time frame that the European Union uh, are expected to give us because n nobody will want to be campaigning over the Christmas period. They don't think anybody will want the, the Christmas period to be in the middle of the campaign. So 
And if you call an election at the beginning of January, you're into February. So it's a, it's always been a very, very tight timetable. And it's always long been obvious that this was the crucial week in which things would come to a head. And for some of us, we were going for a long time. You know what? Yeah, I can see the government getting the, uh, getting um, a substantive motion through narrowly. And then the the procedure motion, the program motion will go down. And of course, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. Program motions are the things that undo governments. The Scotland and Wales Bill of 1976 was undone by the inability of the then minority Labour government to be able to get a program motion through. House of Lords reform in 2012 was again scuppered by the inability of the government to get the program motion through. And given how incredibly uh, um, ambitious the program uh, Prime Minister's timetable was from the beginning of trying to get this bill through in 10 days, when on average, major European Union treaties tend to take between 30 and 40 sitting days to get through, you could see that this is the point at which the government was potentially um, uh, highly vulnerable. Well, we're going to be digging more into the parliamentary shenanigans later and also looking what could happen uh, next if the worst happens or the best happens or just the better than the worst happens. Uh, After some reminders from Naomi. Our Romaniacs live in Manchester on Saturday the 2nd of November with the brilliant Rob Ford, Professor of Politics at the University of Manchester and one of the big thinkers on Brexit and all related matters is very nearly sold out. There are still a few tickets left for Rob plus Ros Taylor, Ian Dunt and Dorian at the Lowry Theatre on Salford Quays at 2pm. I should say Rob is extremely good, extremely good. I work with him a lot. And the exclusive Northwest Friendly merchandise is looking good. So get your tickets now at thelowry.com. Meanwhile, we are about to announce another live show before the end of the year, possibly around Christmas. As ever, Patreon backers will be the first to find out and they'll get discounts and tickets too. To make sure you get dibs on the best seats, sign up as a Patreon backer and you'll get our mugs, T-shirts plus lots of exclusive content too. That's thelowry.com for our Manchester show and search Patreon Romaniacs to support the show. Thanks, Naomi. Now, Boris Johnson lost the chance of getting his deal waved through on Saturday to the Letwin Amendment, won a first reading of the withdrawal bill on Tuesday night, but then MPs decided three days, for some reason, wasn't enough time to study the most consequential bill in 50 years <laughs> and struck down his timetable, the, the programme motion. As more than one person pointed out, the Wild Animals in Circuses Act, one of the best acts, affected just 19 animals and it got four days in Parliament. But isn't Brexit a circus? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's definitely wild. Um, Naomi, Johnson threatened to pull the deal in its entirety if, if, if he was mm-hmm. thwarted on the timetable. Instead, he, he paused it. We all need to know far too much about parliamentary <laughs> procedure now. Um, what does that mean? Um, well, it means that uh, it's paused. So unless they uh, pull it or um, unpause it, uh, we are in this sort of state of limbo at the moment, unless opposition parties try to do what they've done previously uh, on several occasions in the last year or so, which is to use Standing Order 24 to seize control of the order paper and try and unblock this somehow, uh, potentially bringing their own version of uh, the WAB uh, or some other mechanism. Um, worth remembering that 
we only have a few days left of Speaker Burko being Speaker. So that will, of course, impact the ability of opposition MPs to be able to do certain parliamentary manoeuvres we are expecting. So um, I'm just hoping that all of this isn't totally out of date by the time we've finished recording, because as we know, we could come out of the studio and, and, and things could have can moved I, on. Can I ask, Naomi, I mean, what views do you have on the Speakership? Because I'll be honest, I've been asked quite a lot mm. about, A, who do you think is going to become a Speaker? And then B, what difference will it make? Mm. I mean, do you? I mean, do you have a, a, a set of favoured run favourites amongst the potential runners and riders so far as your interest is concerned? I mean, uh, probably from the the campaign as a whole, the movement as a whole is sort of very keen on Harriet's. But um, yeah, we're we're sort of uh, assuming that the next speaker will not be quite as uh, flexible with uh, their application of convention and procedure as Speaker Burko has. No, but then Speaker Boko has now provided the precedent that a successful mm. speaker could follow true, if, she, if he or she were, 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 were to wish to do so. What about Lindsay Hoyle, who in some sense is, you know, is you could argue is the person mm. who has the best core because he's been a very loyal uh, deputy. I don't think he's got very many enemies inside the House. Um, how, yeah, do, how, yeah. how do you feel no, about Lindsay Hoyle? I mean, I, to be honest, not taking too much of a view at this okay, stage, right. but, uh, you know, because I don't have a huge amount of control over it, so I'll have to work with whoever it is. Does the process involve them all having to say order and unlock? Yeah. And then just the person with the best voice <laughs> definitely gets pushed to the top. In which case, Alexandre ought to be uh, number one I love, candidate. I love unlock because it makes <laughs> it just sound like a, a computer game. Um, now, looking at the studying the, the, the list of who voted mm. for what, um, only five hardcore Labour Brexiters, the yep. kind of beyond hope people, <clears throat> um, voted for the timetable, whereas 19 voted for the second yeah. reading. So they're not against Brexit, but they want time to scrutinise it. Um, Now, obviously, there's no point trying to change Caroline Flint's mind. Mm -hmm. Um, But how sort of... sort of squishy are those people in the sort of the Melanie on camp? I mean, I think that that was what was very interesting about yesterday. We were all expecting that level of Labour rebellion. Um, So none of the campaigns were particularly surprised by the the number being 19. It it could have actually been a little bit higher. What I think they will almost certainly do is vote against the third reading, a significant chunk of them, bar the the, the five or six hardcore, um, as you said, Caroline Flint, probably among them. Um, the, The rest of them would probably vote against the third reading subject to it um, having not been sufficiently well amended. So if it's not amended to include things like a customs union, they, I, I don't think they will pass this at third reading. So now we're in this paused phase, it's, un, you know, it's unclear as to what's going to happen because if we weren't paused and the, the bill was progressing through and we know that, that um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson were talking about that today just before we came into the studio. I was hearing that it was kind of three days um, for committee uh, st- uh, phase and three days for um, report stages that they were thinking if, if that happens and it can get unlocked and amendments can get put down, mm. you may well see those Labour numbers falling uh, And we need 15 of them us. to come over to overturn this majority of 30. Yeah, that's right, yes. Right. Is that possible? Yes, but, but, but of course, I mean, to, to realise, I mean, and this is obviously what the government is aware of, is um, if, it, if the bill is not amended, 
then there is a risk that a significant number of the 19 will go and therefore putting its majority at risk. But of course, if the bill is amended, you lose the people it loses, on the other the, side. It loses the ERG. <clears throat> and this, yeah. is, this is the going point. So although you know the majority yeah. perhaps was rather bigger than some people expected, it's still a very fragile majority mm. and it's not entirely clear that mm. the government can fulfil the expectation. And the truth is, to some degree, you know, as Boris contemplates what to do, he's probably not unaware of this no. and you know looks at the opinion polls and go, well, actually, maybe yeah. going for an election is a is a safer bet than trying to push this bill through uh, over a timetable that would give at least the House of Commons sufficient time to be able to amend the bill if yeah. it's so minded. So I think I think you're right there, John. What, the, everything we know, the government also knows. Um, we've said it a million times before in this uh, show that it's a game of whack-a-mole. Theresa May had that problem. Boris Johnson's got that problem. You appease some, you lose some off the other side. However, uh, my concern is that even if we do manage to get this uh, bill passing back through. We do manage to successfully amend it with things that we consider to be unpalatable to members of the ERG. Um, I don't think we can assume that the ERG would then back away from it and the whole bill would fall because I think what they're seeing is that this is a route to getting something through, getting an election, then there being a landslide for the Conservatives and they can undo it all once they've got a massive majority later down the line. John, to follow exactly the details of the deal, or if you're Jim Fitzpatrick, not bother, um, <laughs> but to follow exactly what you know, so it's in the deal and then all the kind of different moving parts of kind of, you know, which MPs are leaning which way, it's really complicated even if you happen to be running a podcast about Brexit. Um, so when you're polling, you or you know, other pollsters are kind of talking to people about do you support Boris Johnson's deal? Mm. Um, and obviously there's a lot of don't knows in there. Um, how useful are those are those numbers when it is such a kind of, as I think Tony Blair said, it was it's sort of next to impossible for the, uh, just a normal person to, to follow all this stuff? Well, the answer is that if we were to either have a second referendum or an election, uh, the electorate will be, uh, at least amongst other things, being given uh, an opportunity to cast their judgment on Brexit and how it's been preceded and what should be uh, the final decision. Um, so, uh, therefore, knowing what uh, how voters react becomes rather important. And it's very clear that the reaction of uh, the electorate to Boris Johnson's deal is different from that from Mrs May's deal. Mrs May's deal uh, bombed. I mean, indeed, Mrs May's signal contribution to the Brexit process in some respects is that she managed to unite Remainers and Leavers. It's just her misfortune that she remite, she re, she united them in dislike of her proposals. Boris has at least come up with something that Leave voters on balance support indeed you know at least around a, a half of them uh, maybe somewhat more i say that yeah, definitely support they're not just saying don't know um now of course many of us would then go on to point out that probably the reason why that's the case is that it is boris johnson's deal rather than Theresa May's and also that it is a deal which the Conservative Party seems to be and deep. Boris Johnson's other signal achievement he has united the whole of the Conservative Parliamentary Party mm. behind his uh, uh, deal so they so insofar as voters have take their cues about what to think from what they hear from politicians whom they trust and they follow the signals that Leave voters have got not all of course because Nigel Farage takes a different view but many of the signals they've got is 
you know, this actually is 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 a good deal, and that, that's where they follow. And the truth is that may be indeed, whether there's a referendum or whatever, that in the end is is what uh, influences people. So therefore, what the polls tell you is crucial. And and you know, it is important to understand in terms of where we are at at the moment is that the public reaction to the deal, while no, in no sense overwhelmingly positive, but it is on balance positive, and it's particularly positive amongst Leave voters, that is a crucial political fact. Mm. Ben, on the, on the European front, uh, Donald Tusk is obviously up for an extension, because yeah. he's always there yeah. when you need him. He's our guy. Um, Macron is, is sort of moaning again about the extension. Um, what, do you, what do you sort of expect to see, do you expect to see a kind of like the sort of three month shorter, longer, or the flex extension, which is basically as long as it takes to get a deal? Well, I guess we'll know by the time this podcast goes live. But just before coming to the studio, I was saying that Tony Connolly, who um, um, uh, broadcasts for RTE and is and is a great source of information on Twitter, was saying that Varadka was supporting January the thirty first. I think the question at the moment is what Macron does, whether Macron plays silly buggers, whether he postures for a while and eventually they opt for January the thirty first or not. He spoke to Johnson this morning. One has to suspect that Johnson was urging him for a shorter extension. Certainly the concern amongst Remainers will be that the EU and Johnson are now working on the same side if they want to get this deal over the line. Um, and, you know, for we Remainers, I think it was a really important day on Saturday to show European capitals that there is a huge, vibrant, passionate pro-EU movement in this country, the biggest in Europe now, and please do not abandon us at this moment. So um, I... I suspect at the end of the day that Macron will um, will make noises, but eventually they'll go for the longer extension. But you can check that against reality when this podcast comes out. Yeah, I don't think uh, Tusk would have made his announcement last night yeah. if he hadn't had sign-off from Macron. Macron always has to do this, doesn't he? Mm. It's just the thing that he does each time. It's just goes... What's motivating him to do that? Domestic politics? Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, the, the French population are just utterly fed up with us. Over the last few hundred years. Yeah, I was going to say, it's nothing new. (laughs) They've suddenly gone office. (laughs) So, John, how does Labour's Brexit uh, policy poll? Because people say, oh, it's actually quite simple. You negotiate your own deal and then put that versus remain in a referendum. Um, Do the public agree that that this is sort of a simple... Uh, uncomprehensible no. plan. No, I mean it's perfect. I mean, it's, it's, sorry, it's a little while since I looked at this particularly detailed polling data, but uh, polls that ask people whether or not um, you know, Labour's position is clear or confusing um, uh, te- have repeatedly found that far more people think it's confusing than clear. Indeed, I mean, one of the remarkable things about Brexit is that it's an issue on which people are clear are as clear about the Liberal Democrats' position as they are that of any other party. That is quite a very unusual situation. Usually, people struggle to. With, you know where the hell the Liberal Democrats stand uh, anywhere, um, but the, uh, and equally, uh, if you uh, opinion have been asking people regularly for the last three or four weeks, basically to choose between the party's three positions, which you know was you know Boris uh, you know leaving by the thirty first of October, um, if necessary without a deal, uh, Labour's position, which is to go away and renegotiate and then to come back and put it to the public, but we won't tell you what we think about it, and then um, the uh, the Liberal Democrats' position, oh, let's just cancel all this list, all of this. Um, uh, Labour's position comes third. 
So, yeah. I know, and, 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 and the honest truth is, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why Boris Johnson has the possibility of being held an election is that, you know, the Conservatives have recovered from the mauling they, they, they achieved in the European Parliament election. They, like Labour, were down at around 25% in Westminster voting intentions in the immediate wake of uh, the European Parliament election. Labour is still at 25%, is exactly where it was at the end of May. The Conservatives, in contrast, have been able to squeeze the Brexit Party vote, unite much of the Leave vote, and uh, as a result are well ahead. And Labour are basically ble- uh, bleeding votes still heavily to Liberal Democrats and Greens. Nearly one in four, four 2017 yeah. Labour voters are saying they're going to vote for Liberal Democrats, and that creates Boris Johnson his opportunity. It's the split yeah. in the Remain vote and- between Labour and Liberal Democrats mm-hmm. and the fact that he's managed to get the Conservative support amongst Leavers almost back to where Theresa May had it that creates him his opportunity. And I would just add as well that Labour are sort of more vulnerable to a winter election um, in terms of turnout. Younger people are time poor, they're more likely to be doing school runs, you know, things like that. Any any kind of bad weather impacts those with very little time on their hands. It helps Well, except, ba- except bad weather isn't terribly good for older voters, you know. If, you th- if there was snow on the streets, the older voters will struggle to get there. I, I think that can work both mm. ways now. I mean. I, well, I, I mean, it, certainly in terms of voter registration and lower turnout, it, it is um, incredibly important because in 2017 the non-voters split 67-33 for Remain and August, September, October is the largest quarter of the year where tenancies turn over yeah. and those in the private rented sector are most vulnerable to having drops off the electoral yeah, sure. register sure. Um, students going to university, especially if it's, in t- if, if, if it's a December election are they registered at home, are they registered at university, where are they going to vote, it's all very very confusing yeah. and that certainly so, hurts Labour So everything hurts Labour Essentially. Yeah. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you are either at the People's Vote March or you wish you were or you really hate crowds, but you wished as well. No matter which way things go, the size and energy of the protests are the biggest since the Iraq war. And it's hard to imagine that energy will just dissipate. Well, let's start in the in the bad place. What do we do if Johnson wins a majority in an election, uh, gets a deal through um, quite easily? Um, Naomi, without, without giving too much away... Um, do you think there will need to be a sort of period of mourning, perhaps not quite as long as the effectively 11 months after the 2016 uh, election, you know, where people were kind of knocked out really for a year, a lot of people? Um, I mean, do you, is it possible to just rally people for whatever the next sort of stage is? Or do you think inevitably some people are going to be in sort of wound licking mode? We had a real leadership vacuum in 2016. Um, and as an ardent Remainer who had been campaigning hard, the the fact that Cameron, Osborne, you know, everybody in government who'd been advocating Remain exited stage right, that the official Strong Green campaign rebranded as Open Britain and came out for a soft Brexit... We just felt completely abandoned uh, and there was no leadership. And um, I, I think that's dangerous and um, it, it loses you crucial time. Um, three and a half years on, very few of the campaigns have been making the pro-European case during that time. That's why Best of Britain has been doing quite a lot of that, targeting his hats off levers over the last few weeks. Uh, Mike also the scientist for EU, has been doing quite a bit of it. But, you know, m- most of the big campaigns haven't been making that case. Um, and then you're into you're back into the, the sort of the negative stuff about why Brexit is bad, rather than why staying in and the status quo would have been good. So I certainly think the the frustration and anger 
um, in the country will be such that you will need to have a rejoin campaign get off the ground incredibly quickly. Because let's not forget, this is a minority English issue. You've got a constitutional crisis, as we have talked about several times. Northern Ireland does not want... Brexit and will not want to be outside the EU and then some of them won't want to be sort of half in it and half out of it um, Scotland doesn't want it and will go hell for leather for independence if it's forced upon them uh, and we now know from our MRP that, that Wales certainly doesn't want it and, and particularly those Welsh ports where they're going to be heavily affected by um, a border in the Irish Sea so you've effectively then got you know an, an older English uh population advocating for the situation that we've got and, and, and most people in the country not wanting it. So I just don't think you can have a period of calm and mourning because there will be such levels of unfairness and injustice felt by people around the country that, that they will need to channel that into something. One thing I wonder about, Ben, is one of the things that kind of keeps a lid on people's anger, on Remainers' anger, is this idea that you're going for a people's vote, right? You're going for a referendum. Don't be, don't be mean about Brexiters, Leave voters, um, because you might need to persuade some of them, um, which is a very kind of rational approach. If it goes through, that's that's just off the table. Um, I get the feeling that the sort of lid will come off, and there will actually be a huge amount of that. People perhaps have been biting their tongue regarding Leave voters are just going to think, well, what, who, what the hell? It's gone now. There's no. There's no more persuading to be done. So, do you rather than just a kind of like a deflated thing? Do you think that there will that there will just be this this sort of explosion of rage because there's no reason not to be angry? Anymore? I think for a short period of time, yeah. But ultimately, you know, we're in a cold culture war at the moment, and um, and um, and I think that will probably continue. I think lots of people's anger will be directed at forcing Johnson and the government to own it um, for too long. Brexit has been the sunlit uplands, it's been this abstract concept, we haven't really known what it is at least we have the withdrawal bill now that we can look at it but if it happens we're going to be able to compare our observed reality to what was promised I, yesterday I was watching um, an old Vote Leave um, YouTube advert from 2016 I hadn't seen it before, it was extraordinary on the left hand side of the screen um, it had uh, if we stay in the EU and on the right hand side of the screen it said if we leave the EU and it was an old woman going into hospital and she went into hospital, she went up to the reception and then the two films began to part and in the one that if we left the EU she got this extraordinary treatment there were nurses pouring over her um, it, was, it looked like a private booper hospital she was cured immediately and she left with a smile on her face. And on the left-hand side of the screen, it was someone waiting in a waiting room all day. And then it said, vote leave, we give £350 million to the NHS um, uh, if, if you leave. We're going to be in a position when, where, where people's lives will not materially improve. I suspect they will probably get worse, both because of Brexit and because the economy is on a downturn anybody, anyway. And at that point... People are going to be angry, I think. And I think leavers are going to be angry. In a short period of time, they're going to be angry at this government. If you look at what happened with the Iraq war, you know, for a long period of time, in the run-up to the Iraq war, this country was, was split down the middle. Soon after the invasion, that statue of Saddam came down, it felt it was over, and, and, the, and the interventionists had won the argument. About four months later, when you poll people, many people who had supported the Iraq war said they had never even supported it. If you asked you know, what you thought years ago, and I think there's a very good chance that if we Brexit, um, six, eight, ten months after we Brexit, then people will say, many people will say they were never in support of this. Um, and you've worked for Greenpeace, and you're used to sort of... Um 
you know, underdog campaigning, and you've obviously used a lot of these lessons in, in, in sort of led by donkeys and how to make it an impact. Um, what sort of things make these campaigns work that, that, that might be useful lessons for a kind of post-Brexit Remain movement that might not want to take the 40-odd years that the Eurosceptics took after 75? Yeah, I was actually thinking about this, and, and the lesson I would take isn't actually from a Greenpeace campaign, but a campaign that was run against people like me, which was the, the campaign that was run by climate sceptics um, you know, in around 2008, 9, 10. And at that point, they were trying to prove that the science was shoddy and the scientists were political and and that it wasn't based on good science. And I remember very well that there were a series of stories in the Murdoch press about um, scientists lying about glacier cover in the Himalayas or Mm. Amazon dieback and these various things. And I wrote a piece... um, back then about the asymmetric nature of defending climate science, the extent to which the climate scientists have to be right 99% of the time and the sceptics only have to be right 1% of the time because they get their media hit from that and they get to create a two-sides balance thing that we all saw manifested on the Today programme. I think that if we Brexit, then the, 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 the structural dimension of this argument is actually going to favour Remainers, and we're going to be able to run a kind of guerrilla narrative campaign demonstrating that that Johnson and his government aren't delivering what they promised that they would deliver. You know, and we're going to have a lot of material to work with, a lot of material to work with. They are the status quo at that point. They promise change. They're going to find it very, very hard to deliver it in a contracting economy. And I think they're going to be in really, really big trouble. That said, there's still a chance that we can stop this. Well, we'll come to the good place briefly in a bit. Um, John, I just wanted to ask, uh, obviously, Brexit has sort of wreaked mayhem on the um, on the sort of party system and you ended up with that bizarre sort of um, bit where they were almost level pegging, you know, around the time of the European election, you have four parties mm-hmm. and around 20-odd percent. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Brexit deal goes through, and of course... Um, there's a lot more to the process than that. As I'm not sure if you saw that focus group, the Telegraph focus group, where apparently they were met with there was horrified, horrified silence, silence when they realised that that actually wasn't the end of Brexit. <laughs> um, but do you expect there to be a kind of uh, that for this sort of realignment to to sort of stay this kind of leave remain um, factor in politics? Do you expect that to kind of still be a, a huge part of of how people make up their minds in sort of general elections and local elections, even once the deal is done? Yeah, I certainly don't think it's going to disappear, and I suspect it's still going to be relatively important. It's always been there. I mean, the essential underlying value uh, dimension that underlies the Brexit debate is a division between social liberals and social conservatives. Social liberals are those who are relatively comfortable living in a diverse society. Social conservatives are much more concerned about uh, a degree of homogeneity in order to promote uh, uh, social cohesion. That's always been there. Um, And the Conservative Party has always done a rather better among social conservatives, Labour rather better among social liberals. But the left-right divide has always been the more important one. But not, of course... I mean, for Liberal Democrats, you know, the, the secrets in the They've always been a party that's essentially a group of social liberals. And as you can see how the parties occasionally vacillated between being kind of left of centre and right of centre on economic issues. Um, and equally, you know, I mean, the, the, the one thing that's been new that's been introduced to our politics, it was introduced by, by UKIP in 2015, was that they're also them being a, a countervailing party to the Liberal Democrats, i.e. UKIP, now the Brexit party on the socially conservative end of the spectrum. So that part of our politics has always been there. Brexit has 
focused on that value argument rather than the left-right argument. Brexit was never a left-right issue. And given that, um, as you've just said, a lot of people will be wanting to change the decision, but more broadly, we, you know, we're, you know, we've sorted, what, 15% of what we need to sort out with the European Union. There's a remaining 85% to be sorted out. Um, uh, that uh, you know, The arguments of the transition period and thereafter are probably going to mean that you know, this is going to continue to be a relatively prominent issue. Um, and I you know, would not be surprised. I mean, and in a sense, of course, also, we just simply have to say, you know, the Liberal Democrats have now just simply recovered from the day Buckler of the tuition fees, and they're, mm. they're just simply back in business as a party, albeit as a rather more Europhile party. Like the, the party who I, you know, who I and, uh, guess is slightly more problematic is is the, is the long-term future of the Brexit party, um, because so far, at least, the organisational representation of that end of the political spectrum has been relatively unstable. Whereas, obviously, the Liberal Democrats have, you know, the Liberal Party been with us for years, etc. Um, but you know, otherwise, you know, uh, frankly, um, yes, I. I think it's still going to be relatively important, uh, or if albeit not necessarily as important as we anticipate it will be if indeed if there is a general election this year. Um, and then before we move on, just a quick look at the good place. Map out to us mm-hmm. um, the path to the light. Um, what would what what would need to happen? What's your what's what's the remainers' dream scenario right now? Dream scenario right now. Um, is that somehow we managed to get um, a, a, a final say referendum attached to the confirmation of any deal going through. Um, I, I'm not a total fantasist, so I do think that a general election is much more likely um, as we record this right now. But I think in terms of what needs to happen, um, yes, the march was amazing and it makes us feel good and it will have had an impact i think on on some uh journalists uh probably not that much of an impact on some mps what we know does have an impact on them is when they hear from their constituents so i would say we've got to dial down the twitter pylons uh, that is really really mm. unhelpful and pushes them in the wrong direction um fine to thank them and all of that but i think the sort of humiliation and the you know getting the fbp brigade to pile on on twitter is deeply unhelpful and will push them in the wrong direction but emails really do work we got 50,000 emails from best of britain to the 50 MPs that we needed to persuade... We we were worried about voting the wrong way on Letwin over the weekend. Um, And 60% of those came from first-time constituents. These were ones that had never before written to their MP. And that's when the MP will begin to check themselves and think, well, maybe the mood of the country is changing. This isn't just the guy that emails me every single week about Brexit. This is somebody I've never heard from before and and things are changing. Because I did notice with... um, I mean, Caroline Flint is now a lost cause and it just sounds like a kind of the Brexit party but like sort of someone like Melanie Orn mm. was, was now bringing up kind of quoting Varoufakis and, mm. and making all these sort of legs She's calling it a capitalist club I know making all these Lexi like, arguments yeah. you're like, but you're, that's not you and it's so it just right. felt almost like that they get into this defensive mm. crouch and then they're just grabbing justifications Anything. off the shelf yeah. so before it's just like what about the simple yeah. I need to you know represent my constituents exactly. again unless you're Jim Fitzpatrick which case who gives shit about constituents um, and now suddenly it's just like well I've been reading Varoufakis have you heard about the Greek debt crisis mm. you know and I just thought oh is this this seems to be what happens almost if someone is, is brought into a corner yep. they actually become like harder yes exactly pro-Brexit and so the Flint being this extreme example where she's just basically like new hoey 
Now, if you live in Caroline Fitz's constituency and you remain, I do keep emailing her, but I do think we've, as a community, we have got to totally dial yeah. down the Twitter pylons. Okay. Probably a good lesson for life. <laughs> Our special guest this week, as you've heard, is John Curtis, sophologist, analyst, and a man who's witnessed more political crises than you can shake a black rod at. Um, it's fair to say the reputation of sort of polling as, a, as an industry has has sort of uh, taken a kicking since around the you know the middle of the the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of these things are within the margin of error, and people often go, you know, mistake likelihood for saying that something was completely impossible. And polling companies, of course, did not say that sort of a leave vote was impossible. Um, Certainly not. But the general general elections, I mean, when when there's enough sort of surprise results, and I think you particularly see this manifest with Labour supporters, where however badly Corbyn and the party are polling, they go, ah, well, but wait for him to turn it round. Um, Are there, as an industry, were there kind of weaknesses in the methodology that that have really been addressed? The answer to that question is that there are weaknesses in the methodology which nobody is sure whether they have been adequately addressed. (laughs) Um, Let's just stick to the elections. The the, the lesson of the 2015 election basically was that um, in the end the principal problem was that the pollsters were interviewing samples of people who were too pro-Labour. Now, this has polling in the has got more difficult for one very simple reason. Um, polls tend, for the most part, to interview people who are likely to vote, which you might think go well. That's fine because that's the only people you really need to talk to. However, one consequence of that is that the polls tend to underestimate or, or, or under anticipate the age difference in turnout. One of the things that, of course, began to happen in 2015 and became even more evident in 2017 is this very, very remarkable relationship between age and the direction in which people vote. Not something that was previously particularly marked, but, you know, we had something around like three-fifths of 18 to 24-year-olds voting Labour in 2017 and three-fifths of those age 65 and over voting Conservative. In those circumstances, if you underestimate the age difference in turnout, you're, sim- you're at risk, therefore, of overestimating the proportion of Labour voters, the proportion of young voters who are, going to tur- who are going to turn out and vote Labour. So the people you interview may well indeed turn out and vote Labour, but the point is they're not necessarily representative peers. So that, 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 that is a you know, basic problem in 20, uh, 2015, too many Labour voters, and at least part of the explanation will, will lie with the inability to reflect adequately differential turnout. Now, what happened in 2017 was... Different. A, remember, not everybody got it wrong. Actually, the one company that didn't change its methods at all, which is Servation, who had done a poll in 2015, but they didn't publish it, and they were reasonably right. But in 2017, they got around to publishing it, and they were they, they were closest. I think they slightly underestimated the Conservative leader, remember correctly, but I stand to be corrected. Um, um, and, of course, YouGov, in, at least in one of their exercises, um, was relatively close, though not in, in, not, not in one of their other exercises. But what happened in 20, between 2020 and 2017, the pollsters said, well, hang on, what are we going to do about this? And there were particularly lots of uh, efforts to try to model the data in such ways to more adequately deal with this problem of differential turnout. 
the result of which is that they overegged the pudding. They are, they overcompensated, um, and as a result, if actually, whereas in 2015, if you'd looked at the unweighted, if you just taken the the interviews the pollsters had collected and looked at what they were saying, it was Labour and Conservative neck and neck. Mm-hmm. And then after they'd done all their weighting and filtering, whatever, it was still Labour and Conservative neck and neck. This was not true in 2017. In 2017, the unweighted data was a much was a markedly narrower Conservative lead than was the weighted data. And this, you know, the weighting and filtering actually pulled the polls further away. So basically the pollsters have dropped all the things that they introduced in 2017. We do have a legacy of, of some of the effort, other efforts to do with 2015, such as, for example, to try to ensure you've got more 75 pluses in your sample, uh, to try to do more about getting into the, your panel of people, people who aren't interested in politics. Um, so, so the fruit of some of those efforts are there. But the honest truth is that basically at the moment, the polling industry is, is basically still using the same methods as in 2015, is largely analysing the data in the way that it did in 2015, it is just hoping that it's got that, that, that samples are right. But of course, one thing that then also at the moment, at least, has definitely been different from 2015. In 2015, basically, apart from the one instance I quoted, um, everybody got it wrong. So far, at least, it looks unlikely that everybody's going to get it wrong in 2019. We just don't know who's going to get it right, <laughs> right. because there is there is a variation yeah. uh, between the polls, mm. um, a, a lot of which focuses on whether or not they're, they've got too many Labour voters in them. But actually, if you look at the variation, the variation is actually more to do with how well the Tories are doing than necessarily how well Labour are doing. Could I ask you about MRP and your yep. view on that? Because obviously MRP did um, correctly call the shock wins for Labour in 2017 of Canterbury and Kensington. And so, yep. you know, that's that's what we've been using. What, what's your view on that as an approach? Well, I mean... Could you uh, explain? Well, okay, let me explain. Uh, 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 multi-level regression and post-stratification is basically saying, well, let's... If we have a, a really large data set so that, for example, we can identify women aged 25 to 35 who use OMO as their soap powder, have two children and are divorced and they live in the north of England, um, we can say, look, you know, uh, we've got enough people in our data to be able to say the probability of somebody with those characteristics will vote, let us say, Labour is 25%. Okay, and then we've got other data out there, beauty primarily from the census. It says, well, in Doncaster Central, we know that ten percent of the electorate fit these criteria, so we will go right. So uh, that ten percent of the electorate um, is going twenty-five percent are going to vote Labour. So we add 0.25 mm-hmm. to the Labour total, right? So, so basically, it's using uh, heavy statistical modelling to estimate the probability that anybody with certain characteristics living in certain kinds of places or in certain parts of the country um, are going to vote for the parties. You then know how many people of that kind live in each constituency and you basically add up the, 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 the estimates, OK? So that's what it's doing. Now, it's as good as the polling data, all right? There's nothing magic in it that suddenly turns b- bad polling data into good polling data. And indeed, you know, one of the interesting things about the, the YouGov exercise in 2017, you know, good, that, good as it was... You know, actually, given that they slightly overestimated the Conservative lead in votes in terms of their overall uh, national vote share, they actually managed to underestimate the number of Conservative seats. So actually, in terms of capturing the geographical variation, it didn't exactly uh, work out. But, uh, but of course, what it does do, it, it gives you some idea as to how the geography may be shifting. The standard way in which we kind of 
translate votes into seats off the back of opinion polls and say, well, let's just assume the electoral geography is the same as it was the last election. If it's the same as the electoral geography last election, this is what will happen. Uh, th- this enables you to be, kind of drop that assumption and to be- begin to look underneath it. Now, in truth, you know, a, a lot of what happened in 2017, such as, for example, the Conservatives doing so much better in Leave areas than they were doing in Romania, so far as the change in vote, uh, voters can say, you could actually see from polls that didn't have MRP, but the point is MRP uh, then enables you to translate into uh, figures for individual seats. So um, you've still got to have good polling data, and if the polling data are wrong, you will not get to the right figures. But that said, even if actually if the polling numbers are wrong, actually they're probably going to tell you whether the electoral geography have shifted or not. Yeah. Uh, correctly, and insofar as you're uh, an organisation trying to work out where to put your resources, then obviously that's potentially pretty valuable and, intelligence. And, and it's very expensive, so if listeners do want to donate to bestforwritten.org slash yep. donate so I can yep. do more MRP, that would be great. Thank you. We'll cut that bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Any time there's a poll uh, on Twitter, um, you know, someone tweets out the result, um, you'll have people, whether from left, right, leave remain or whatever, sort of challenging the kind of the, the sort of ethics and not just the kind of reliability and going, oh, you know, polls, polls can be flawed. It's almost sort of, you know, using them as sort of a punch bag. I mean, is that just... Um, has that has that always been the way or do you think that there is a kind of populism to populists on the right and the left? The pollsters are like the mainstream media. They're like the establishment. They're the kind of like baddies and if they tell you something that you don't like, then they must be... Yeah, sort of lying. Sure, 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 sure. There's a bit of that, um, um, but the truth is, of course, you know that that's something that's particularly evident in our politics more broadly at the moment. Um, you know, uh, two fifths of us are either ardent remainers or ardent leavers. And we interpret everything that goes on through that prior prism. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's opinion polls or uh, economic statistics um, or, you know, complications about the Nor- Northern Ireland Party of the Agreement or whatever. If you are a Leave voter, you interpret it in a way that's consistent with your views. And if you remain a partisan, you, you interpret it in a way that's consistent with their views. And sure, I mean, look, you know, for those of us who live through the Scottish Independence referendum, I mean, I know this all too well. You know, if a poll came out in the Scottish Independence referendum, it's relatively good for the yes side, then all the yes people would retreat you. <laughs> and then if and it was relatively good for the unionist side, all the no people would retreat you. And sure, people uh, were, people uh, want to share the news that they think supports their view, and they wish to ignore that which uh, contradicts uh, their um, assumptions. The, the rest of us tried terribly hard to uh, go a middle path and say, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, which of course is not it sometimes means that both sides think you're wrong, but you know that's life. But that's interesting. You say two out of five of us are ardent, yeah. which means a majority, not aren't asked, but they, you know, that they're not sort of that they don't make that their identity. Does oh, that? No, that... no, that, that's not what I'm saying. Oh, two, sorry. Two, okay. two out of five of us say we are a very strong remainer oh, or okay. a very strong lever. Most of us actually identify with those labels, and the crucial point is that um, I mean. Only around one in ten of us call ourselves very strong Labour, very strong mm. Conservative. And the interesting thing about this phenomenon is it actually takes us back to the politics of the 1960s. Yes. Back in the 1960s, yes. 40% of us felt very strong Labour, 
or conservative or in a few cases liberal and and then we used to interpret the world through these prior partisan uh, filters uh, that all has all gone decline and, and my profession has been spending a lot of time worrying about this decline saying oh people have got disengaged from politics mm-hmm. and perhaps it's very difficult for us to remember that it's only about 10 or 15 years ago that all our politicians were going god turnout's gone down nobody's interested in politics we've got a lost generation i suspect some people are wishing that's back where we were because, <laughs> um, fewer death well, threats you know, we're, 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 we now have a heavily engaged politician mm. british mm. social attitudes which tracks le- levels of interest in politics has, sh- has shown a, a, a noticeable increase we are deeply deeply engaged by this subject um but of course it, so on the one hand it means that more people are involved but it also means that more people are involved in a way that is certainly not dispassionate. Does that mean in a coming election that the, the real prize is going to be that 20% of people that don't strongly identify as Remain or Leave, a kind of shiftable fifth? And are they the people that are going to decide any election coming up? Uh, that's more difficult to tell because, of course, some of those folk who don't have feel very strongly Remain or Leave will may still feel quite strongly attached to political party. What is true, and here is the deep, deep irony, if we were to have a second EU referendum, it would be decided by the minority of us who don't have strong views. And the reason why the polls show Remain ahead, but only narrowly ahead, is that those people who did not vote three years mm. ago are at least around two to one in favour of Remain. But amongst those of us who participated in 2016, whether we are Remainer or Lever, between 85 and 90% of us say we would do exactly, exactly the, the same, same but, thing again. But that's it, because you understand voter behaviour better than almost anyone. And I suppose, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece about um, leavers, people have voted leave and it's shifted to remain and, 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 and sort of, you know, remain and now is, mm. you know, that was one of the pieces that that yeah, remain was responding some. to. Um, but there's the some, leaders... There's some leavers now too, though, by the way. The leaders, yeah. The leaders, is the remain lead is fairly, but, but, but sort of much narrower. Now, just on the kind of, the psychology of that and people not wanting to change... I mean, as from your On both point sides. of view, well, sure. did, did, that, did that? So, did that surprise you at all? Did you think it was very optimistic well, that there was I ever going to be a sh- major shift? I, I, I will tell you what did surprise me. If you'd asked me before the um, EU referendum started, you know, did, would, did I expect basically the distribution of opinion not really to shift? Or would I expect to be volatile? I would say, well, given the history of British attitudes towards the European Union in the previous 40 years, we could anticipate quite a lot of volatility. I mean, we've had periods uh, such as the late 80s, early 90s, when we've been heavily pro-European. We've had other periods when we've been strongly anti-European, not least in the first decade or so of the the 21st century. Um, So the history is volatility, but actually there was very little shift once the referendum was put into train. um, And that's continued to be positioned since. What it's done is is that it's you know it's opened up a major social and ideological division in our society and I, you know you know it's important to to understand that in the end you know this isn't just an uh, an argument about ideas and about you know what's in the country's interest we're talking about two very different social groups it's on the one hand it is young people who have relatively good labor market qualifications these are the people who can profit and can use freedom of movement and the wider connection with the European Union. At the other end of our society, we have older people with little in the way of education qualifications. They are the people to whom immigration happens and who do not 
particularly feel any uh, benefit from being inside the European Union. They go, you know, why why do they stop this country running? And that is the crucial division. So in the end, you have to understand this isn't just an argument about people with different ideas. It's not about knowledge. This is, you know, you need a bit of Marxist analysis here. This actually, in part, is an argument about real interest. A different, different sections of our society have different real interests when it comes to the argument about Brexit. There you go. Some, for people who complain there's not enough Marxist analysis on this podcast, <laughs> there's there some for you. Before we go, don't forget our companion podcast, On the House, where MPs Sam Chima and Philip Lee meet friends and political rivals for a pint after Parliament to discuss the events of the week. And there's a special guest on this week's show. Fresh-faced young hopeful Ian Dunt will be joining them <laughs> in the pub or one of the underpasses near Parliament to talk about whatever unimaginable events will have taken place a whole 26 hours from now. So subscribe to On the House on your favourite app now for that Duntcast special. <laughs> in the meantime, from the current episode, here's Philip Lee asking guest Alistair Campbell about his spiritual successor, Dominic Cummings. <laughs> Do you get a sense that his manner and his sort of ruthless way in which he deals with the special advisors is, is he either copying yours or has he been watching too much of the thick of it? No, I think it's, I, I think there is an element of that, but I, I think it's, <laughs> look, I've had a few actors play me, but I've never had a Hollywood A-lister. Cummings has had Benedict Cumberbatch and I honestly think he's gone to his head. I don't think he's Dominic Cummings anymore. I think he thinks he's in a film. That studied look of kind of chic scruffiness, right? I think he spends half an hour in the morning in front of the mirror <laughs> deciding how dirty the body warmer should be because he's looked out the window and he's seen a couple of cameras there. One of the things I'm proud of, if you talk about the way he treats special advisors, you won't get many people that work for me who slag me off uh, because I was always very... Con I mean, it's part of my session of sport. If you build a team... You've got to have mutual respect within that team. You've got to know that everybody knows what their role is and you've got to respect them. And I don't get the feeling that Cummings and Johnson respect anybody other than the people who are in the room at that time, provided they do what it is they're telling them to do. We're at the end of the podcast which means the Brexit time capsule is looming. What things will we need or miss if we leave the EU under Boris Johnson's deal? John Curtis, uh, as our guest, you decide what's going in. Well, I mean, I, I, of course, I'm not going to refer directly to whether or not we're the result of leaving the European Union. Uh, but let me just say what, what we might miss as a result of Brexit actually being decided. And, it, of course, it is that Tower of Babel that has appeared at various key occasions during the parliamentary process of the last 12 months uh, on College Green, but for listeners not aware, it's that, <laughs> it's that patch of green <laughs> opposite the House of Commons. You want to know where all those pictures come from of Parliament, you know, behind either Hugh Edwards or Adam Bolton or whatever. Um, that's where they're coming from. It became a bit of a quagmire, a quagmire last November. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a remarkable Tower of Babel because, you know, it's in, it's in many languages, many tongues. Um, whether any of it makes any difference at all, I'm somewhat deeply sceptical but for whatever reason it's thought to be crucial that television should have the pictures of the House of Commons and, for, and equally also that radio broadcasts should take place for, from this part of our so that, if, if indeed uh, eventually Brexit is sorted in one direction or, a, or another and political life calms down um, that uh, tented village on College Green will be missed at least for some of us Who's that while. town crier that's on the Today programme every morning? Steve Ray. Is that... Yeah. Is that who it is? I never hear what he's yeah. saying, but every time you just hear Stop someone talking... Stop and they go, Brexit! Yeah. And they go, whoa, 
of it is just this kind of like like bird song. I, 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 but it has to be said. I mean, you know, to some degree, you know, it has added, added to the gaiety of our pod. I mean, for the most part, um, the uh, both those on the pro uh, EU side on the pro Brexit side have been extremely good natured, um, and um, uh, there's been you know uh, there's been obviously have been occasional incidents. But actually, for those of us who are, you know just go up and down occasionally down the pavement, they kind of say hello and whatever, um, and you can see them chatting to each other. And, and of course, actually on the on the, I think it was on the night that Theresa May lost her first vote. First vote both sides cheered. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing people together. Bring her back. She's the unifying figure we need. Um, this week's foreign language clip comes from listener Dominic Feather, who says, this is French Ghanaian Creole by my partner Carol, who is from French Guiana originally, but has lived in the UK for the past three years. Boris, tout jouer c'est jouer. Qu'est-ce bon tu pas jouer? Chache coucou, coucou couvreu. L'adje Brexita. And that means this isn't a game anymore. If you're looking for a fight, the fight will find you. Forget Brexit. Just put that on a mug. And there's our show. Thanks, Naomi Smith. Thank you. Thanks to newbie Ben Stewart. Did you yes, enjoy thanks it? Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks to John Curtis bracing himself for election 2019. You're welcome. <laughs> Remember, it's your last chance to get tickets for Maniacs Live in Manchester on Saturday, 2nd of November, with special guest Rob Ford. Now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, available as a free download at ampleplay.co.uk, and the latest addition to the Roll of Honour, that is our list of Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Mary Shaw, Christian Law, Richard Downer, Sharon Brown, Gideon Seymour, Aaron H, John Harrison, Stuart Hedges, William Watts, Matthew Hall, Alex Boyd and Stuart Hunt. Hello and many thanks from me to Jane Ivey, Andy Howells, Lindsay Milligan, Olaf Hartberg, Geoffrey Searle, Andrew Prince, John Harper, Stevie Gone Evil, Richard Allen... Karen Alston, D.H. Morton and Pete Lamb. And thanks for me to Marion Stiasny, Deborah Hudson, Nicholas Granatino, Alastair Hay, or Hake, Mats Wickberg, Robin with a Y, Kate Clark, Seb, Mary Jane Menzies, Rob Lindsay, Ian Robinson and Brian Curtin. Thanks, we'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ben Stewart. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.